Today's video was recorded on December 21st, 2021, and is the second and final video in our short series on the Book of Judges. In today's video, we continue our look at the cyclical decline of Israel throughout the period of the Judges. Now, ultimately, this decline leads to a breakdown in the fabric of society and ends up in an unnecessary and bloody civil war. Within the Book of Judges, the disintegration of society is expressed in the symbolic nature of the narrative text. And so we're going to explore some of the symbolism that was used in the ancient Near East that helps communicate an abstract concept, such as the collapse of a nation, to a people who regularly express truth concretely. So much of the message of the Bible is communicated through the symbols that are created through the narrative. And if we miss that, if we don't read that narrative correctly, then we may end up missing the larger message that God has for us. Now, as 2021 draws to a close, if you've found value in our Bible lessons, we ask that you would consider a year-end donation to Fig Tree Ministries. Fig Tree Ministries is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we rely entirely on the donations from our generous supporters. So your donation directly impacts our ability to continue to create lessons that help people go deeper into the biblical text. So you'll find a link to our donation page in the description section below. We so appreciate your generous support as we work to expand God's kingdom here on earth. So ultimately, what I hope this study on Judges does for you, really, is to help pull that book, this ancient book, out of the shadows of your Bible, and to show you how the message that it conveys is still relevant to us today in our modern context. So enjoy part two of the book of Judges. So this will be part two of two, only two weeks on Judges. It'll be a reiteration of last week to give you a little bit of a review. And then I'm going to add a, a few symbolic items as we go along. And, um, you know, we, we laughed last week that it's, so right now, today's the week of Christmas, and we laughed that, you know, what a great thing to study, or uh, the week of Christmas. And I was thinking today, but you know what? You know, we make Christmas nice. All the lights are pretty, and that smells like pine, and presents are wrapped nice, and we forget that Jesus was born and placed in a stable with animals, right? You don't move the manger into a nice place. The manger is with the animals. And so Jesus entered the muckety-muck of our world. He entered the chaos of the human existence, not just to launch us out into heaven, but to walk with us in the chaos. And that's what we see in Judges. It's just a reflection of the chaos that happens in humanity. And so Jesus will be in the chaos too. And in fact, sometimes the place you see Jesus the most is when you're in chaos. Unfortunately, that's where we often have our closest touches with God uh, when we're not too comfortable. So judges might be just the appropriate one to uh, do for Christmas as we want to, you know, invite the Savior in the world to walk with us in the world that we live in. All right, so we'll go for it then. So this is going to be titled, uh, I know I mistitled the, the handout. I put part one of two, but it's actually two of two. Last week, it was Descent into Chaos. We'll review that. But ultimately, this week, the descent into chaos ends in a civil war. Uh, the body of Israel is torn apart, right? The, the political body is being torn apart, and they end up in a war. 
And of course, this is happening all the time in our world. So as a quick overview, we, um, last week we looked at these downward cycles. So if you get anything out of these two judges' studies, notice the flow of the book. That helps you as you're reading it. The book has two distinct parts. You have these downward cycles, chapter 2 through 16. Chapter 1, scholars don't know what to do with that. It kind of doesn't make sense. There's no flow to it. But chapter 2 through 16 is a downward cycle. So we talked last week that they envisioned themselves living kind of in this great cycle. And then every time the cycle repeats, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And it descends. And ultimately, as we'll see tonight, descends into civil war. So Judges 3 through 16 are that, those repeating cycles. We'll review it in a minute. Then what we'll talk about tonight, Judges 17 to 21, these are the final five chapters. There's a phrase that keeps repeating. In those days, Israel had no king. Now, on one level of analysis, According to, the, to Exodus and Deuteronomy, they're supposed to make God their king. So to say they had no king meant that they weren't following God, but they also wanted a human king. So in those days, Israel had no king, and as we'll see, they're descending into chaos and civil war. That's what we'll do tonight. Those are the two distinct parts. If you get anything out of this study, if you go back and read the book of Judges, now you'll be able to see, oh yeah, I can see this flow down into chaos, and it ends in civil war. So, okay, we'll do this tonight, the downward cycles. Civil war, obviously, we'll talk about that at the end, and there's some uh, very unique symbolism going on um, that we'll try to at least give some understanding to, because if you don't know, you just don't know what to do with it when you read it. And then I want to take the opportunity to, uh, in this study, because judges it's all narrative. I mean, so much of our Bible is just storytelling. Genesis and Exodus and Joshua and Judges and the Gospels are storytelling. It's narrative, and they're, the writers of the Gospel use techniques to, com to carry the message along. Or I'm sorry, the writers of the narrative. Well, we're never trained in narrative. How, how, do we, how do we read narrative? No one ever teaches us that. And so people struggle. They don't want to read Judges because it's too difficult and confusing. So I want to at least talk about, as the author is putting together the story, you're going to see techniques of narrative. Repeating. Seven times, it says, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's repetition. He's telling you, he's highlighting what you should be paying attention to. So. Uh, techniques of narrative, and we'll see a couple of them and how that carries the message of what's going on. And then finally, the last thing I'll do is one cultural, and when I say cultural, this time I mean the Mediterranean, ancient Near East culture, not just Israeli culture, um, cultural and symbolic significance that the ancient people communicated symbolically. They communicate in very layered um, style of communication. So as a, if Jesus or an ancient Near Easterner is talking, then 
everyone's going to start searching what they're saying for the message. We don't do that. We, we speak very abstractly, low context. All of our messages are right on the top. Totally different, especially for ancient Near East. So we'll talk about one cultural piece that's very symbolic and God willing, that'll help you with one detail of the story that's very difficult for people. Okay, that's where we're going to go tonight. That's, that's the roadmap. So, the downward cycle. We did this last week. Just a review. From Judges 2 through Judges 16, seven times. Now, we're seven right there. You have the number seven in the Bible. The author is up to something. Seven times he repeats. Uh, oh, wait, I'm sorry. Scratch that. Reverse. Six times this cycle is going. I'll show you the seven times in a minute. Okay, so six times the cycle. We all want peace. Shalom. The, the Hebrew shalom. We want peace. That's what everybody's striving for. Peace in the land. And what happens is they have peace in the land, but over time, as generations go by, what happens? The younger generations forget what God did for them. They forget the struggle. And so they forget God, and as they forget God, and they start, stop following him, the Bible says, and this one shows up seven times, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, if you get, if you get that phrase repeated seven times, that should clue us into something. It's one of the main messages of, the, of this book of Judges. So seven times, evil in the eyes of the Lord. Well, when you do evil, what does God do? He sends an oppressor. So they have an enemy come in from the outside to oppress them because they're all disjointed. Eventually, it's so chaotic, they get to the bottom of their bottle or bottom of the barrel or bottom of whatever, and they cry out to God, God, save us. God says, okay. And he sends them what we call a deliverer or a savior, a leader. Now, the book of Judges calls them a judge, but it's really a leader. That leader then leads them back to God. And once they get back into God, now they experience peace in the land. Okay, so that's the main cycle. The problem is that cycle, uh, the, the, the text tells us in chapter two, every time it cycled around, they got worse. They, their evil got worse and worse and worse. So there's a declining uh, aspect to their cycle. So that's the main gist of almost the entire book of Judges. So if we go back to this, uh, this picture here, we see that there are six of these cycles. The seventh, when we get to number seven, the very end, what do we find? It's utter chaos and civil war. So again, you're lining up the number seven, and seven becomes, you know, the worst. Now, that, that's the big cycle, and that's, a, that's an important piece to notice. But I want to show you something based on a, a symbolic reading. This is, again, symbolic reading of one of the names in this cycle. So last week we noted, and it was on your handout, God raises up six different judges, Othniel, uh, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and then Samson. Now, we all know Samson, right? That's, he's probably, Gideon, Deborah, and Samson are the most famous. 
Samson's the last one, right? So why does Samson, now why is because it just happened that way, but Samson's the number six before it careens off into civil war. And I want to show you something unique about the name Samson, because we have to remember there's a symbolic component to these books, and names are very, uh, they always, biblical names always have a meaning, and you should look for the meaning, because that often will tell you something about what's happening. Like in the name Jesus, that's our anglicized, in Hebrew, Yeshua, and it comes from the root verb yasha, which means to save. And then you, you put a little prefix yah, which is God, God saves. So Jesus' name is God saves, or God will save. Well, that's his mission. So if you want to know what Jesus does, look at his name, and he has to live up to that name, God saves. Okay, so there's two names that show up in the Samson story. Samson, and who's his female counterpart? Delilah. And we all know that. But what do the names mean? Or could there be something symbolic? And of course, the answer is yes. Because after Samson, of course, we go into a civil war. But let's look now. This is number two on your um, handout, because it's the final cycle. So could there, could there be something significant with the names? Samson and Delilah. So the name Samson, it comes from the Hebrew word for sun, the sun, the sun up in the sky. So the Hebrew word sun is shemesh, with a, um, like a S-H, shemesh. His name is Shimshon. We call him Samson, but shemesh. So the sun, shemesh, he's a little sun. Now I'm just going to put this up there for the video because... If people want to study more in depth, that's the Hebrew word for Samson. This is Shemesh right there that I just highlighted. So his name is made from the word for son. Okay, so what? Well, Delilah, interestingly enough, the name Delilah sounds very similar or, or uh, sounds like and is spelled just like the Hebrew word for night. The Hebrew word for night is Lila. So if you want to say good night, Lila Tov. Tov is good. Here's, uh, again, just putting it up for the video. Now, think about that for a minute. Just think, what's going on? You have a battle between two people. One's named after the sun, and the other one's named after night. Right? Could there be a symbolic picture going on of a battle, say, between light and darkness? Samson and Delilah. Because, now, we don't know. I mean, it's not like the writer, until we talk to the writer and say what was going on, or it's one of those things that you can play with, though. Because if you know Hebrew, you know those two words sound like, oh, wait a minute, sunshine and, and nighttime? Like, you know there's some kind of, they're set against each other in some weird way. I'm sure if you're a six-year-old, you know your Hebrew, you're probably telling stories about it. Because... So I just wanted to give you at least a hint, and, and would it make sense in the Bible there'd be a story about darkness and light? Would it make sense that you have the nighttime is trying to take away the power of the sun, right, to keep it dark all the time? Something like that. And Samson only gets his power back when he cries out to God. Even the sun is control, is, gets its power from God. So 
there's a lot in there, but I just wanted to give you that little piece because when you go back to this and you say, oh, Samson's at the very bottom. He's the one that right after that. And if you, if you see the symbolism of uh, sunshine versus the night, it, it adds just another component to the story that, well, it may or may not be there, but boy, the, the words kind of point you in that direction. So that's what I mean by symbolic. One thing is, is that the rabbis, because they know they're Hebrew and we're at a deficit, they just play with that all the time, right? That it's darkness and it's, and we don't see that at all. So to us, it kind of sounds like cheeky, but the reality is it's the way you play with the text to try to pull meaning out of it. So just a little, that was just a little detail about Samson that might, you might want to think about. All right. So uh, number three on your handout is what we want to do. So last week we talked about that downward cycle. It comes to Samson. Is there something about darkness and light? Well, we don't know. We'll ask the writer and Samson someday, God willing. I don't know how that works in heaven, but we'll do that. Um, so it gets to, through Samson, and the book totally shifts. So the book of Judges at chapter 17 makes a huge shift. The cycles are over, and we're on to now, um, there was no king in Israel. And this is where we get into the civil war. So what I want to do is show you that the the author doesn't stop with the progress of, of flow. The shift happens because now we're, at, we're entering a new stage, but I want to show you how the chapters flow out because I think it speaks to cultural things even today, here, possibly here in America. So we're not going to read um, much of it. We're going to read, I think, two verses, but I just want to go chapter by chapter because there is a flow to this. So you'll have to go back and read these, but Judges 17 and 18, because I want you to get the picture of what's happening, how the decline of society is going on. The first thing that happens is you have a deterioration of the religious cult. Now, in Judges, they're a federation of tribes, and then they come together to worship Yahweh at certain sites. And when we read 17 and 18, you get idols, you get now independent worship, you're you're kind of detaching yourself from the religious cult. And so uh, almost every scholar will point out there's a deterioration of the religious cult here. And I don't mean cult in a bad way. It's, the, it's putting on all of how do you worship God. It was, it was a, a bit more chaotic than, you know, finally Solomon builds a temple. But now you can see, what does, what does a deterioration of religion lead to in a society? Well, in Judges 19, the very next chapter, what you find in Judges 19 is chaos. It's an inversion of the social order. And we'll, talk, we'll mostly talk about um, Judges 19 today. Everything flips upside down. Why? Because you don't have a unifying factor of God, right? God, God is, unifies us in worship, unifies us in our values, unifies us in our behavior, unifies us in all kinds of ways. If you lose God, anything goes, and you get the inversion of the social order. And that's what happens in chapter 19. Now, the way it's described, the, the, the story that they tell in this is very similar to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Every commentary on Judges 19 will say it looks just like Sodom and Gomorrah. So you have. All the, all the same things happen uh, as Sodom and Gomorrah. And 
the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a deterioration of social order. Well, what happens when there's deterioration of social order? Something devastating is going to come in. Sodom and Gomorrah, God destroys them. But in Judges 20, it's now a civil war. So the, the disintegration of, of society leads to war or some kind of violence. That's, so chapter 20 is the civil war. And then Judges 21 ends. It's a bit of a strange story, frankly. Suddenly, the tribes, after they just defeated the, ben, uh, the tribe of Benjamin, they're very concerned about the survival of the tribe of Benjamin. They want them to have wives so that the, the nation conti can continue on. So there's a, uh, that's basically the whole chapter. They're concerned about the tribe of Benjamin. Oddly enough, if you go back to the Sodom and Gomorrah story, the Sodom and Gomorrah story ends the same way. Uh, you have the sexual violence uh, that's proposed down in Sodom and Gomorrah. You have the destructions of those cities. Lot and his daughters escape. And there's a concern about, it's probably the second most disturbing story in the Bible, besides Judges 19, where Lot's daughters are concerned about having sons. So they conjure up a plan, and they both get pregnant, and they give birth to Moab and, and the the country of the nation of Ammon. So there's a, so anyways, what I want you to see here is as the flow of this goes, you want to just notice that there are a lot of similarities. There's a pattern of societal decline and we'll see that in other places, but those are the final five chapters. So the progress doesn't stop, but it shifts. It shifts to say, here's what's happening in, in Israel society. Now, those are the last five chapters. Next, and this is number four, because this is a, this is a literary technique where the author is going to tell us something about what's going on. How do we recognize that there's been a big shift from the first part of the story to the last? And the way that we do it is through the idea of where the enemy is. So in the first six cycles, or I'll even show you the very first um, sentence of the book, the enemy is always on the outside. You have Israel, the 12 tribes, and it's one of their neighbors is the enemy. And what happens when you get to the end of the book, where's the enemy? It's on the inside. The enemy is no longer outside. It's now we're fighting each other. That's the horror of a civil war, how it tears apart the nation. So there's a literary technique. And I just want to show you this because this describes in well, very well what's happening to the text. So here's what you can do. If you want to turn to Judges 1.1, look at the very first sentence of the book. So I'll show you Judges 1.1, and then we're going to flip real quick over to um, Judges 20, because that's the Civil War, the start of the Civil War. So Judges 1.1 begins with an inquiry to God. Israel inquiring of God. So we see the, the, the author tells us after the death of Joshua, the Israelites ask the Lord. They're going up to God with a question. What's their question? Who of us is to go first to fight against the Canaanites? So who's the enemy in this case? 
the Canaanites. It's those people out there. It's the other. One thing that we pay attention to when you're looking for literary techniques like repetition is you're going to find the very same sentence show up at the Civil War time, but now the enemy changes. So that's verse 1. Who of us is to go up first to fight? Who are they fighting? The Canaanites. Now, do this. Turn to Judges 20, verse 18. And notice who they're going to go fight against. The same exact thing is happening, right? The Israelites went up to Bethel, the house of God, or the, the city where, the, where God's, the ark is, and they inquired of God. What's their question? Who of us is to go up first to fight against, and now it's our brother, the Benjamites? So you can see, as society declines, you lose God, everything goes into to disorder, and suddenly the enemy is now each other, instead of something that unifies us from the outside. And of course, that's how civil wars happen is you're suddenly doing, you're infighting, and it's brother versus brother, and it's a terrible place to be for a country as you're being literally torn into pieces because of, the, uh, of what's happening. So that's just another technique of literary, how you can match what's going on in the text. And these are so common that there's hundreds of them in the book of Judges, no time to do it. But I just wanted to show you that one because there's a big shift and who the enemy is, and we need to pick that up. Now, of course, they go into a civil war. Eventually, the nation is going to reconstitute, and the story goes on to Ruth and then Samuel, and Samuel is the introduction to the monarchy. First, Saul, and this is what's interesting about judges. The first king is Saul. He's from a town called Gibeah, and Gibeah is the town in Judges 19, that it has the major offense. The major offense is committed against a guy whose father-in-law is from Bethlehem in Judea. Well, where's David from? Bethlehem in Judea. So there's symbolism at least going on where God's connecting these because even those kings were going at each other. So hopefully you see that. That's, I think that one stands out. Now, flip your page. I'm going to completely shift gears. I'm going to completely shift gears, and I'm going to deal with one thing in Judges 19 uh, that's it's a disturbing little sentence, but I want to show you some things from the perspective, uh, a more symbolic perspective. So we're not taught, we're generally not taught in church to read our Bible this way, to look for the symbols. Uh, very much like if, if you said, Jesus is the sacrifice. He's the Passover lamb. So you get, a, you get an, a symbolic picture of his death. He dies on Passover. He's called the lamb of God, just like the original Passover lamb. The blood covers you and you're delivered from slavery. Jesus has the same function. He is the Passover lamb, but it's symbolic. The text never says it out loud or, or explicitly. So there's almost always in the Bible, there's something symbolic going on or as we always talk about, cultural. So as we read our Bible, generally speaking, most of us read at the surface level. We kind of see the words. We're not really doing a lot of um, trying to pull out all the symbols. When you go to scholarly work, they're pulling out all the symbols, particularly people who are trained in, in to do that. And it's amazing what, you'll eventually, what you can eventually see. 
So you have this narrative text. We read right at the surface, nothing wrong with that, but it can almost get boring or tedious or we, we don't, we're a little confused. We don't catch the message. And if we don't allow ourselves to kind of go deeper into the text, and instead of reading at the surface, you start looking for the symbols of the text and they kind of rise up. They emerge out of the Bible. And it's really cool when you one day you read something and you're like, oh, I see symbolically what they're talking about rather than just the surface level reading. So in the Eastern culture, especially the ancient Near East, this is how they communicate very symbolically. God communicates symbolically to people. He, he communicates to the culture that he needs to communicate with. We're also very visual people. We love symbols, and symbols uh, hit us very hard at, 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 in our humanity. We hang on to them. They mean a lot to us. So if you haven't considered that before, this is what I'm going to take you through, is a couple of the symbolic things that are going on in the story of Judges 19. Okay. So unfortunately, um, since we've already compared Judges 19 to, uh, uh, to Sodom and Gomorrah, what happens in Judges 19 is there's a Levite. Now, of course, the Levites are the priests, and he has a second wife, a concubine. They go down to Bethlehem, they're with her father-in-law, and they're coming out of Bethlehem and back north, and they're traveling through the tribal area of Benjamin and there's rape and a sexual violence. So I apologize. I don't I apologize for the language, but that's what's happening in the text, just like in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what scholars have noticed is that very often when we find a story of, I won't say all of them, but a good, but if you want to say the majority of them, when you find a story in the Bible or in other ancient cultures of rape or sexual violence, it's almost always telling us that society is disintegrating. The stories are always connected to something that's disintegrating right next to the very next story will be the dis disintegration of the fabric of society. So that's just symbolically. Yes, these things happen, but then you have symbolically social societal disintegration. For instance, Sodom and Gomorrah in, in Genesis 19. So. Rape, sexual violence, societal disintegration, at least in symbol. And that's what's happening in Judges 19. Um, a couple other, other ones, if we want to add another piece to this, um, you can have sexual violence, like a rape or threat of a rape. That's indicative of the breakdown of the social fabric. That's not supposed to happen. And then very often it leads to war. Well, that's what's happening in Judges. So you have a symbolic story of. Uh, I mean, it's a story that happened, but then you can take the symbols of sexual violence and the breakdown of society, and all of a sudden you're at war. And this happens in other places of the Bible. So we see the, we see the pattern, not only in biblically, but you'll find it in other stories from the ancient, uh, Medi ancient Near East. So for instance, one of them is Dinah in Genesis. So Dinah and the Canaanites, Dinah uh, is raped. And that's then followed by a war. Her brothers go and attack the Canaanites. So there's one ex another example, the breaking down of the fabric of neighboring people. And then the final one that I put on your handout is um, in 2 Samuel, Tamar. And this is within David's family. So there's a rape 
And then what you immediately following that, you get one brother killing another brother. Then you get the complete, the, the fabric of David's family just falls apart. So again, it's just that scholars notice there tends to be a theme of symbolically that those go together. So I just wanted to point that out because it's another thing that we don't generally, we don't connect them together, but they should probably be connected together. Okay, so Judges 19 is probably, you know, it's a tragic story. It's disturbing. And again, what happens is the Levite, and of course the Levite is supposed to be the religious leader, his wife goes down into Bethlehem. So here's what's one thing we can contrast. They go down to Bethlehem. Hospitality galore. It's the hospitality is over the top. The father-in-law is pulling out all the stops, food, drink, sharing, everything. Tons of hospitality, tons of hospitality. Then we contrast that as they're moving back north and they go up to, to the town of Gibeah. Horrible, inhospitable actions. It's the same thing as Sodom and Gomorrah. You have chapter 18 of, of, of Genesis was Abraham. He, he hosted the angels that showed up at his tent, even though he had just been circumcised. And he's showing all the hospitality. Next story, Sodom and Gomorrah. So they're placed right next to each other to give you a contrasting of hospitality. So you go from one uh, element of hospitality down to the second element of hospitality. And then you find, of course, it's almost the same exact rape story coming out of Sodom and Gomorrah. But there's one piece that gets added to this that you just don't even know what to do with. You're just like, what is happening? So they, they give the woman over to all the men of the town. There's violence against the woman. And the very next day then, as the text tells us, the Levite walks out the door. The, the woman has died. She's on the threshold of the door, and she's died. It's just this terrible sentence. The Levite says, come on, get up. She doesn't move. He puts her on his donkey, takes her back to town, and then dismembers her body. Now, I know, this is, you think, what is going on here? Um, but I want to show you something, because... We read that. The very first time I read it, read it, I thought, oh, I can't believe what's happening. I want to show you, this is a symbolic event. He knows the symbol of what he's doing. The people of Israel know the symbol of what he did. And nobody is concerned about the symbol of dismemberment. They're upset about what happened to her at Gibeah, the, inhospi the, uh, the, the sexual violence. And if we miss that, if we miss that this dismemberment is actually um, a symbolic event, and it's symbolic to the what's happening to Israel, what happens to a country in a civil war? We would use language like the country's being torn apart. The fabric of society is being torn apart. Well, they're Easterners. He doesn't say a word. He does something. He, gives, he does something concrete. So what I want to show you is nobody questions his actions. They all know exactly what the symbol means, and that's the whole point. So it's a symbolic uh, dismemberment. The female body is, is like a stand-in for society. What's happening to society? It's being ripped apart. 
So it's a sign of Israel and that that female is a representative of the social body of Israel. Again, because if you think about what's happening, think about our civil war that we had in America. It tore families apart, tore the country apart. It's, if we were to describe this, we would say Lady Liberty was torn into pieces and 50 pieces were, set, were sent to all the states. That would be the symbolic nature of what we, what we might say. So this whole thing is very symbolic to what's going on, and they know it. And so this is what I want to show you, because if you read that sentence, you think, what is happening to this? So I want you to go to the text. It's Judges 19, 29, and 30. And then I'm going to show you culturally, how would they know that this is a sign? How do, where do they get the idea? They're, nobody's upset by the dismemberment. They know exactly what it means. And how do they know that? Well, there's some collective thinking about this, and it comes from the culture of the ancient Near East. So, Judges 19, 29. So, the, the Levite had put his concubine on the donkey. He takes her home, and then it just says this, with no explanation of anything. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into... 12 parts. Now, right there, why 12? What's, what's the symbolism? She's Israel, and she's being torn apart into 12 different parts. Well, how many tribes are there? 12 tribes, right? And then it says this, and he sent them to all the areas in Israel. So he's going to um, send couriers with the message of what happened. But when to all the tribal areas of Israel, but when they get it, they're not, again, they're not upset about the dismemberment. They're upset about the message of why, the dis, why this happened. So, uh, verse 30 Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, Such a thing has never been seen or done. Now, what's the thing? And see, the very first time I read this, I thought the thing was the dismemberment. I thought that's what they're all upset about. But it's actually not, because in the next chapter, he explains, look, the reason I, I cut her up and sent the pieces out was because of what happened in Gibeah. And everyone's like, okay, got it. There's nothing, and that's just, that to us is as strange as can be, but as the such a thing that hasn't happened is not the, the Levites' actions, it's the actions of the Gibeonites. So then it says, just imagine we must do something, right? So they see the dismembered body, and they know the sign. Ah, we're being torn apart. Now we have to go do something about it, because they hear the story of the female. Okay, then what I want to deal with is this sentence right here. He sent them to all the areas of Israel. Why do that? So what does a dismembered body and all the tribes of Israel have to do with anything about, a, about the dis decline of, a, of a, uh, a nation. And where we get it is another cultural piece from the ancient Near East. And so now I'm about to depart everything you've heard biblically. We're going to go down to e Egypt and check out something in Egypt. But you have to remember, the Israelites are, recently came out of Egypt Egypt is their giant next-door neighbor, the empire right next door. They know all about Egypt. They all know all about Egypt and the way they describe things. And so 
scholars have pointed out that you can say, what's the symbolic nature of this? Well, we have to take a trip down to Egypt and to a story that they tell, the Egyptians tell, about these gods. And it's a very old story. It goes back to like the 3,000, uh, so 3,000 years old, uh, or no, it would be about 5,000 years old now. It's a myth. It's obviously not real. But what they're doing is examining the decline of societies. Why does Egypt rise and then fall? Well, what's the book of Judges about? Israel rising and falling. And so this whole myth is about the, the rise and fall of the uh, dynasties in Egypt. Why do they suddenly collapse and go into chaos? Only to rise out of the chaos and go back into some kind of order. So that's what they're trying to describe. Now they do it using gods. Osiris, Seth, or Set, some people say, and Horus. So let me just tell you, I'm, it, I'm taking a, a, a huge story and dissolving it down in just a couple minutes, but I just want to show you that there's something from the culture that all those people would probably know, and that well, the reason the dismemberment makes sense is because they know this story. So there's a, a god, this is obviously Egyptian myth, one of their gods named Osiris. He's a benevolent king. He represents good, order, uh, vegetation, fertility, the Nile. The Nile brings life every year. He has an evil twin brother named Set. Set is the opposite. He's desert, storm, disorder, violence, chaos. And what happens is that Set, the, the, the evil brother, is up is jealous of the king. And the story goes that at some point, Set gets so jealous that he murders Osiris. There's a festival in Egypt that they have this celebration every year that they reenact this. And then here's what happens. Set dismembers the body. And you have to remember, they're thinking about why is our society collapsing? Well, the social body is being torn apart. Egypt is fracturing. And the body of Osiris represents the fracturing of the nation. So Set dismembers the body, and then he distributes it to the 42 provinces in Egypt. Some stories say 16. Some stories say 42. But what's the point? Well, the whole country of Egypt has been fractured. There's now, well, war going on, whatever. And we need to reconstitute the body to bring the, the nation back to life. And what happens? There's a goddess named Isis. She's a magician. She's able to step in, bring all the pieces back together. And from that, they create uh, a son named Horus, who ends up being the new king, who then brings Egypt back around. It's a, it's a cycle of decline and then bringing back to order. So, in biblical studies, you see something very strange, a sentence like in Judges about this dismemberment, but you find something very similar in the, next, the culture right next door. So when the, when the Levite does this, he knows what he's doing symbolically. He knows what he's telling his neighbors, because they kind of all know the story, or at least they know the symbolism of it. Because eventually, what's going to happen to Israel, right? The, you, you have that, that imagery, well, sorry dismembers the body, 42 provinces. And then 
It becomes that sign for, it, for Israel. And then the social body will eventually come back together in a cohesive uh, manner. So it sounds like a strange thing. I was very disturbed the first time I read it, and I had to do a lot of research on it. But it seems that there's at least something in the culture that everybody would understand is going on. So, okay, I know I'm running a little bit past our time here. I hope that at least helps. You get this. I, I was always bothered by that sentence because it sounded like what a horrible person the Levite is. But the people don't react to that. They know the sign. And then once it was like, oh, there's, there's actually symbolism going on beyond the story. So it's the social body or the body politic of a country. And that's what that represents. And I think the, Lev the, the Levite knows that and the Israelites know that. Okay, hopefully that'll at least help with that little uh, text right there. So quick review. Judges, if you get anything, it's the decline of Israel. But it's not the decline of just Israel. We can see these cycles happening in other countries as well as the culture changes and they lose their order. You have uh, the disintegration of religious cults that we see all over the world, and then the social fabric being torn apart after that as the country's starting to divide. That ultimately leads into some kind of civil war. One of the things, one of the main ideas that we have to remember about this is what's the author telling us is the cause of this? They forget God and they do evil in the eyes of the Lord. So what's our individual responsibility? Not only individually, but then as corporately when we get together to worship, right? Is to make sure that we're, we do our part to uh, not forget God, to keep our eye on God, to corporately worship, to keep the body sustained together, even if there's infighting going on. So everybody has their part to do. Okay. So, judges, it takes some work. Um, you have to be real familiar with the text, and that takes work. You have to read it over and over and over. It does help to search for some symbols. And, uh, you know, the more we can see this 3,000-year-old book that tells us something even about probably our societies today is makes it still relevant which is the whole point of me wanting to go through this, because if you don't see those symbols, you just avoid the book of Judges, because it's like, I don't know who these names are, or where they're going. It doesn't mean anything to me. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. This kind of does mean something to us. I was watching the time. I know I was going over. The festival, every year they reenact the collective nature of bringing Osiris back together. And what they want to do is every year celebrate the unification of Israel. But I think we have rituals every year that we want to bring our country together, right? To remember Fourth of July is a big one, that, that you want to unify the country. And so you have a celebration that is supposed to bring the country together to remind us of the struggles that we went through. And so Egypt would do this to try to reenact so that they'd never have that cycle go back into chaos. So every year they would, they would reassemble the body of Osiris to you know, to say Egypt is unified. I'm not saying that the Bible is copying this text in, from Egypt at all. They're not, I don't think, and scholars don't believe that either, but they do say the people would recognize what's going on. They, kn they know the symbolism of the dismemberment, which is why the Levite just says, okay, here, here's what I'm going to do. And everyone goes, all right. And they just, 
you know, accept it as, you know, the dividing of the of the of the nation. If you get a chance, look at those final chapters, look at the flow, and then read through them, and uh, you'll see how the author goes very quickly through those chapters. But you'll see the the war. You'll see the concern about the Benjamin Benjamites. You'll see the two hospitalities contrasted. If you look on the front page of your handout, page one, at the bottom of it, there are two books or two articles. The first one, Anne Catherine de Hemmer Goodme, Sex Violence and State Formation in Judges 19 to 21. So I think the key is, here's what happened to me many years ago. I knew the story of Judges. I was always disturbed by the dismemberment and sending it to the 12 tribes. What did that mean? Why did he do that? And then I was listening to something, and they were talking about the myth of Osiris and how it described the des descent into chaos and the dismemberment of, you know, and I went, well, wait a minute. That sounds just like Judges. So then I started searching. Are there any articles written about that? Are there any books that, that scholars, and of course, yeah, you're like, there they are. There's, you know, you can find scholarship on any sentence of the Bible, practically. So, you know, if you're a biblical scholar and an, and an ancient scholar, you just know all these stories that none of us have heard. You'll know there's connections, or at least you'll say, well, that one sounds real familiar to something that's happening in the Bible. We're just completely unaware, and it takes training, of course to be exposed, one, to look, two, where do you look? And I mean, I could probably give you 20 more that would help in that direction, but I just really want the, the overarching idea to say there's more, be, there's more going on than we're aware of. We hope you enjoyed this introductory lesson on the book of Judges and that it opens up the book of Judges for you. Now, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you subscribe to our channel, give us a thumbs up or leave a comment below. If you're listening on Apple Podcast, we would appreciate if you would take just a few seconds to rate our channel. And as you go out into the world, may the words of Numbers 6 be with you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you shalom.